This is Asked and Answered. Questions. With Tom Opferman and Steelers Digest editor Bob Labriola. Back in the saddle again for Asked and Answered. Took a week off. Labs on the bye. Went down to Cancun. Had a bunch of people handing him drinks by the pool. It was a lovely time, wasn't it? Me and OBJ. Oh, yeah. On the yacht. On the yacht. Yep. Mm-hmm. Very nice. Cut my, it up with OBJ before the big Browns. And game. you haven't seen um, what my dad put on uh, social media about I didn't see you and how you don't treat me properly. Is your dad talking trash about me behind my back again? <laughs> no comment? Okay, I thought so. All right, let's get right into these questions. Are you shocked that there's a lot of questions about Chris Boswell and the hit he took in this game <laughs> on the fake field goal? Um, you know, seriously, uh, if – if they weren't, you know, and obviously fans don't know what other fans are submitting in terms of the specifics yeah. of, of the subject. But I could have done probably two weeks worth of asked and answered, <laughs> um, you know, and just written. You know, I should have thought of this. I could have saved myself a lot of work yeah, and just labs. copy and paste, copy and paste, copy and paste. But it's anyway, an error on your part. Yeah, well, you know. Well, I got four of the best Boswell-related questions. I'm just going to give them to you rapid fire here, and then you can tee up your answer. But we'll start with Damian Frank from Quincy, PA. He asks, I know NFL officiating is dubious at best, but how was that hit on Chris Boswell not flagged for roughing the passer? There was no doubt that it was helmet to helmet. Bill Poplarchik from Anchorage, Alaska adds, wasn't the hit on Chris Boswell a foul? How could the officials miss it when the side judge is looking right at it? Harvey Heaton from Dartmouth, Nova Scotia, Canada, doesn't want to be left out and asks, in the Browns game, when Chris Boswell took the helmet-to-helmet hit, there were no penalty because he was considered a running back. Or was it because of the official's normal incompetence? And last but not least, Brian Fiore from Swamico, Wisconsin, asks, in the failed fake field goal attempt against the Browns, do the protections of the passer extend to whoever is throwing the ball or is that protection reserved for quarterbacks only? <sighs> All right, that's it, Labs. Okay, Fire well, away. and I'm going to defer um, to somebody who knows a lot more about this than me, if anyone can actually believe that person exists. I don't think so. Um, but, I don't buy it. <laughs> former NFL referee Gene Steratore. Pittsburgh from, guy. Well, yeah, Union Town, which count. yeah, we count it. Okay, um, but a little for for those listening to this outside of Western Pennsylvania, Union Town is about an hour and a little bit south. Uh, of Pittsburgh. So um, Gene Steratore is now a rules analyst slash expert for uh, networks that broadcast NFL games, primarily CBS. Following the fake field goal attempt uh, that everyone is asking about, Steratore tweeted, tweeted, and let me, um, any of you uh, out there listening who are interested, excuse me, in uh, matters of this ilk, I would suggest following Gene Steratore on Twitter. Uh, very informative. Uh, not he, he doesn't tweet garbage. Uh, it's worth your while. But anyway, uh, after the um, after the the play happened, Steratore tweeted, and I'm quoting now: "Even though Chris Boswell is a kicker by position, on this fake field goal attempt, he is a passer." So that directly answers one of the questions about the protections extending beyond quarterbacks. A defender cannot hit the passer who doesn't necessarily have to be the quarterback, just to reiterate, cannot hit the passer forcibly in the head or neck area. In my opinion, this should have been a 15-yard penalty for roughing. So uh, there's that. 
Now let me throw in a couple of answers on the to the issues regarding the quality uh, of the NFL officiating and you know what were they what were they looking at? Right. Okay, the referee uh, of that crew, the referee uh, of the, uh, in the in the game is the head of that officiating crew. He is distinguished because he is the only official wearing a white hat. Okay, the white hat, as it's refer- as the guys referred to throughout the NFL for that game, was Sean Hockley. I don't know if that name, the surname, rings any bells oh, with yeah. any listeners, but Sean Hockley's father was Ed Hockley, the guy who seemed to spend so much time in the weight room pumping up his biceps so he looked good <laughs> when he was signaling first downs or or whatever. Uh, you know, I have a couple of questions about this. Uh, uh, you know, how is a guy's son given a job like that? Uh, because because he's a guy's son? I mean... Oh, can, come on. That can, happens all the time, though. You can't be that surprised. little legacy hire happening. <laughs> We're seeing it on the NBC pre-show with Jack Collinsworth right in front of our eyes. Well, what do we think of Jack? Eh. Hey, he's eh. awful. He's yeah, awful. Exactly. Yeah, ex- okay. Um, Ed Hockley, you know, here's... Uh, let me refer to this as well. It's an old-time NFL Films clip. Marv Levy, when he was the coach of the Buffalo Bills, Marv Levy... Um, very, very intelligent, Harvard, whatever he, yeah. wherever he went to college. And he was screaming at one of the officials on the field, you over-officious jerk. And um, I looked that up, over-officious means someone who uh, is overly interested in, quote-unquote, doing his job to the point where nitpicking uh, becomes a, an issue. Uh, Ed Hockley was someone who was extremely <laughs> over-officious. He loved the sound of his own voice when he would click the, l- the little referee's microphone on when he was on the field to announce whatever he was announcing. And I'm going to go to the old saying about apples and how far they fall from trees uh, to say that, in my opinion, Sean Hockley is the same in that uh, he is over-officious and also loves uh, the sound of his own voice. So uh, to sum it all up, they, the, the zebras blew it. We're not done ragging on the zebras just yet because our next question from Paul Fitzpatrick, and he is from Wilton, Iowa, asks, against the Browns, were the officials using microscopes to find the holding on Ben's dive into the end zone for that two-point conversion? Well, and again, I'm going to refer to the telecast uh, done by CBS. Tony Romo was the game analyst, former uh, Cowboys quarterback, and I believe he is the number one guy in that job currently yes. uh, covering the NFL for whichever network is your favorite. The, when, on the replay, um, Romo's comment immediately was that uh, he, he said, uh, and I'm paraphrasing, uh, it, it, that's, that's a ticky-tack call. Ben was already in the end zone before the, the holding penalty occurred. Yes, technically it's holding. Uh, yes, technically it's a penalty, but that's not necessary to call it in that situation uh, based on how the play actually unfolded. And so here we go again with Hockley's and crew. apple falling real mm-hmm. close to the tree. Right. Uh, over-officiousness. Yep. Uh, you know, the, the goal, I believe, for the NFL in terms of the product it puts forth to its fans, its customers, should be looking to have fewer penalties in games than more. And so, to me, this was one uh, that was unnecessarily called. I mean, what's the old adage? You could probably call a holding penalty on every single play well, in the absolutely. NFL. 
could probably call pass interference pretty on close. every single play, but yeah. you can't be over-officious. If right. it doesn't really affect the play, you just let that one right. go. And exactly. this one did not affect that play. Last one on the officials, I promise, Labs. Then we'll get to some actual football. Tom Hayes from Bend, Oregon asks, I think most of America's NFL fans are on the same page that the league's officiating is getting worse if possible. What is the best course of action for fans like me who would like to see a better officiated game? Is it email campaigns to Commissioner Roger Goodell? Is there any way to affect change in this regard as a fan? Um, no disrespect, Tom. Uh, I don't think there is. Uh, I, I just don't. Uh, uh, you can write letters. You could call if you can find the phone number. Uh, if I had Roger Goodell's cell number, um, you know, probably at that point in the game, I might have texted it to you if you asked for it. <laughs> uh, but I just don't think that uh, it's that big a deal. I hate to break it to Tom. That email you're sending to Roger Goodell, right in the trash can. <laughs> he ain't looking at that. Either for that one or second. it doesn't even get into his it inbox. Doesn't even get to him exactly. All right, let's get to some football now. Jerry Korduski from Scalp Level, Pennsylvania. After Chris Boswell's injury, why didn't Presley Harvin III punt on subsequent Steelers kickoffs? Often on free kicks following safeties, punters punt the kickoff. I think the results could have been much better. Uh, They very very well could have been much better, but it's against the rules. Uh, After a free kick, after a touchdown or a field goal, you have two options. Kick the ball off a tee or drop kick it. Uh, and a drop kick is a situation where you know the ball has to hit the ground. You, you know, the kicker, whoever's kicking the drop kick, holds the ball point down, drops it, it hits the ground, and then you kick it from there. Um, that would not certainly not go as far as a um, uh, a punt, nor would it have the kind of hang time. And if you're not really good at drop kicking. Um, you know, you could flub that. The ball, you know, it's an oblong ball, and the, and the whole uh, trick of dropping the football for a drop kick is that it doesn't bounce crazily. Right. So, um, you know, it, it, again, uh, it's against the rules to punt after a touchdown or a field goal. John Matthews from Parker, Colorado, asks, Rookie Trey Norwood has received some good reviews and may have some staying power. In the Kevin Colbert era, what other seventh-round picks have made significant contributions? Um, Well, in my mind, there are three. And just as a refresher, Kevin Colbert was hired by the Steelers in 2000. So uh, his time as the head of the Steelers' personnel department spans from 2000 to the present. Uh, Number one would be Brett Kiesel, uh, 242nd overall selection in 2002. Uh, Really a, a, a key member of that defense uh, that won Super Bowl 43, uh, Kiesel for Super Bowl 40, was such a dominant, fearsome special teams player that the Seattle Seahawks special teams coach said later that he had to have some discussions you know, with his um, kick, kickoff return unit because at that time, Kiesel was about 290, 6'5", or whatever, and could run. And he was a wedge buster. And he had the Seattle uh, special teams coach said he had to kind of uh, buck up his uh, wedge guys, that this guy is large, he is fast, uh, and he is violent. And so uh, Kiesel was a serious contributor to the Steelers' fifth and sixth Super Bowls. 
in two different aspects of play. Uh, another one was uh, center A.Q. Shipley, 226th overall selection in 2009. He never really played for the Steelers, but he's played in 110 NFL regular season games with 72 starts over eight years. Uh, you make a seventh-round pick yeah. who lasts eight years in the league and plays in that many games, that's a pretty good pick. The other one I would put uh, between Kiesel and Shipley in terms of uh, quality of player would be Kelvin Beecham. He was 248th overall in 2012, uh, 128, uh, excuse me, 120 regular season starts, four different teams. He's still in the league. Um, this is a, He played left tackle. He's a left tackle, yeah. a competent NFL starting left tackle that you pick up on the seventh round. That doesn't happen very often. Kevin Colbert's a master at finding these diamonds in the rough, not just seventh-round picks. You look at sixth-round picks, guys like Vince Williams, it's a great pick to have in the sixth that round. A receiver that used to be yeah, here, Rose's. I, I was a little foggy on his name, so yeah. I didn't want to bring him up, but I think he went to Central Michigan or yeah, something right. like One that. Of those he was a pretty decent sixth-round yeah. pick, too. Before he lost his mind. Yes. It's <laughs> a good way of putting it. <laughs> Ken Malden from Clyde, Texas, asks, I see no hope of you fielding a second Kenny Pickett questions. I'm guessing you did in one of your written versions of Asked yep. and Answered. But he's going to try his luck here. And Ken asks, I watched the Pitt-Clemson game on television, and I was thinking he looks like the real deal. Then I just now read your comments on him. Is there something about him that makes you think he can't play in the NFL? Okay, um, for the listeners, let me just explain. In the first Kenny Pickett question, the um, – Sub, uh, the person who submitted the question compared him to Dan Marino. It's a good comparison. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and that to me, I, I just kind of went off on that, uh, primarily saying that's not fair to Kenny to Pickett. Kenny Pickett. Exactly. You're, you are comparing this guy to one of the transformative quarterbacks in NFL history. Uh, just because they went to the same college and just because Kenny Pickett has better numbers at Pitt than Marino had at Pitt don't compare the two guys. How many um, extra years did Pickett have to get those numbers? Well, let me by the way? and here, Kenny Pickett's in his sixth college season, which the the rules are the rules. You know, whatever they are, he's he's not cheating or anything. But um, the other point I made in the first Kenny Pickett question was another guy who has better passing numbers than Dan Marino at Pitt is somebody called Alex oh, Van Pelt. Yeah. Alex Van Pelt, excuse me, good coach. Um, might end up being a head head coach in the NFL and maybe a good one, but I mean, if you want him as you know your quarterback, uh, I think you're making a mistake. So that was my uh, disagreement with the first uh, Kenny Pickett question that he is not Dan Marino and he should not be compared to Dan Marino because it's not fair for him to be compared to Dan Marino. Uh, so, and let me just finish off with this. Uh, the other uh, contention made was that Kenny Pickett's height and weight are very similar to Marino's height and weight. And uh, you, you got to understand, in college, college uh, football departments will make a player's height and weight whatever it needs to be to attract NFL <laughs> teams' attention for that particular position. Fudging the numbers a little yeah. bit. Yeah. What was Baker Mayfield? 6'1", 6'2", something like He ain't 6'2". Right. Uh, and there are other, you know, guys, they either make them heavier or lighter at other positions based on what position they play and what is a, considered to be a, a optimum weight for that player in the NFL. As far as the kind of ball they throw, 
Um, comparing his arm strength to Marino, it's ridiculous. Uh, his release time to Marino's is ridiculous. Um, a Steeler scout, actually, he was Kevin Colbert's um, uh, right hand man, his number one, uh, number two guy in the personnel department, Ron Hughes, who was once the uh, general manager of the Detroit Lions, once told me that in his, all his years scouting, and that was a long time, he said there were only two players that he ever saw where you could hear the ball that they threw. Hear it. Not see it. Hear it. You could hear it whistling through the air. No, through the air. air. Yes. Bradshaw and Marino. So to compare Kenny Pickett to somebody like that is just not fair to him. So uh, good luck to Kenny Pickett. I hope he has a long and uh, productive NFL career unless he plays for the Ravens. Couldn't have said that better myself, and I completely agree. I hate, hate, hate when young players get those lofty comparisons. You, you're seeing it now with a guy like Joe Burrow. He has one good game, and everybody's like, he looks like Tom Brady out there. Yeah. How in the hell is that fair to Joe Burrow to say that to right. him? Right, because there's, there's no way he's ever going to live up to that, ever. and there's only the only place he's going to go from there is down. Exactly, so you're just setting yourself up to be disappointed Set, by setting him Setting himself, oh, and, and setting him up to be— To fail. To fail, yes. Keith Miller from Waynesville, North Carolina. Other than the 1970s Super Draft, do you think this is the most productive draft we've ever had? The top four are starters, a new punter, Isaiah Loudermilk contributes, and Quincy Roche probably would have. Six of the eight picks are contributing. It's really weird that he threw Quincy Roche into the end of that one. <laughs> um you know, again, this is, I think, a little over-enthusiastic response yes. to what I think is going to be, what it is already, uh, a nice draft class. More unfair expectations, maybe? Yes, creating, because, you know, uh, in the, the his Keith Miller's reference to the 1970 Super Draft, I'm going to assume he's talking about the 1974 edition. Mm-hmm. The Steelers picked four Hall of Famers with their first five picks. Just as a refresher, their names were Swan, Lambert, Stallworth, and Mike Webster. And then Donnie Schell, a fifth Hall of Famer, was signed as an undrafted rookie. Okay. The Steelers had several other superior draft classes early in the 70s. I mean, in 1970, as an example, their first and third round picks, Bradshaw and Blunt. Recently done. Yeah. uh, Hall of Fame players, first ballot Hall of Fame players, uh, Blunt transformed the position, yes. changed the rules. Um, so, you know, I can make an argument that two players like that, and again, I'm not um, demeaning this draft class, but it is so premature yes. to be comparing this class to a class that has two guys like that. And here to me is the most underrated draft class in franchise history, 1971. Jack Ham, Jerry Mullins, Dwight White, Larry Brown, Ernie Holmes, Mike Wagner. You got a first ballot Hall of Famer with your number one pick, and he is one of six players who accounted for 22 combined Super Bowl rings. And just to re- as a refresher, Dwight White and Ernie Holmes were original members of one of the most famous and feared defensive lines in NFL history. So again. Good job by Kevin Colbert and Mike Tomlin and the Steelers on their uh, 2021 draft class. But let's just dial it back a little bit here. I mean, the Steelers are a franchise, a storied NFL franchise, that 
Um, nobody has won more Super Bowls than they have. Uh, and so you have to have had a lot of personnel success, and the Steelers have done that. So let's just appreciate the history a little bit. Uh, again, we can acknowledge the presence, certainly, but let's not forget that you know this isn't um, the Jacksonville Jaguars you're talking about <laughs> when, you're, when you're looking back at their history and comparing things. And let's appreciate the fact that these rookies are helping them win games this year and, and just look at it at that aspect. We can worry about Hall of Fame resumes 15 years down yeah, the road from absolutely. now. Absolutely. Final question today comes from Jerry Blanchett from Sacramento, California. You've answered some silly questions about the kicking game recently. Four-point field goals, one point for kickoffs through the uprights. And so here's another one for me. Has the league ever considered going in the opposite direction and eliminating all kicks? No kickoffs, field goals, extra points after touchdowns, or punts. Everyone already wants their team to go for it on fourth down and to go for two-point conversions. Make it mandatory. Yeah, uh, I don't think that's ever going to happen. I just don't. I'm not disputing that it would um, maybe make the game more exciting, but I also think it would fundamentally change the sport to a degree that uh, that kind of thing would never pass a vote of of ownership. So um, my idea has always been, and Mike Pursuta and I were just kicking this around on the latest Agree to Disagree podcast. Don't plug other podcasts. I'm just kidding. (laughs) You're on that one, too. We love all the podcasts, yes. (laughs) Um, my idea always was to go back to the old days of the NFL where kickers and punters were not specialists. They were just players who played another position wow. <laughs> and then also performed those duties. Yeah. Now, you know, you would look at those, uh, you know, go back. Um, certainly you didn't have any uh, place kickers making 90% of their career field goals, and you didn't have place kickers winning games with 66-yard field goals. Uh, as time expired, yeah. but um, it made the game more exciting. I mean, and there are a lot of uh, examples of this. 1960, Paul Horning, Green Bay running back, led the NFL with 13 rushing touchdowns. He was 41 for 41 on extra points, wow. 15 of 28 on field goal attempts. 1961, Yale Larry, oh, a safety uh, for the Detroit Lions, multiple Pro Bowl all-pro guy, led the NFL with an average of 48.4 yards per punt, also had six interceptions. Uh, Lou Groza, who uh, developed the nickname Lou the Toe, a uh, longtime player for the Cleveland Browns. In 1950, 53, and 54, he led the NFL in field goal percentage. He was also a starting left tackle in all of those games for the Cleveland Browns team that made three appearances in the NFL championship game and won two championships. And in 1946, Steelers tailback Bill Dudley, and I refer to him as a tailback because the Steelers were still using the single wing uh, in that era, led the NFL in rushing attempts and rushing yards. Just a little side note here real quick for you, Thomas. If you're ever in a establishment that serves malted beverages and a trivia question would ever come up, who's the last Steelers player to lead the NFL in rushing? Bill Dudley. Bill Dudley, wow. Bill Dudley. That's really surprising considering how many really good running yeah, backs they right. had. Yeah, who knows? You might clean up. I think I that, will now. Okay. Thank you, Labs. Um, but in addition to leading the NFL in rushing and rushing yard, uh, rushing attempts and rushing yards, he averaged 40.2 yards per punt. 
So <laughs> I don't know how you would administrate that in terms of how many snaps on offense or defense a guy would have to play to be eligible to be a kicker or a punter because I'm sure teams would try to you know, finesse their way out of that to pretend that Justin Tucker is somehow a you know, a safety or you know, whatever. Fifth string safety. Yeah. Depth um, but if you want to, if you want to change the dynamic of the impact of punting and place kicking on the NFL, that's my idea. I've seen Big Ben get a couple punts off in his career. Not too bad. Pinning teams deep. He could do it for the Steelers. Yeah, but what you don't see though, place kickers, you because don't. they impact the scoreboard directly. I think that would be a really tough sell to coaches. Yes, but. You know, you wouldn't fourth and fourth and four from the opponent's forty yard line. You wouldn't even think of a field goal attempt from fifty seven yards, which is about what it would work out if the guy also had to be your left tackle, for example, and was a straight on kicker. Well, that'll do it for this edition of Asked and Answered. As always, we really appreciate you giving us a listen. For Bob Labriola, I am Tom Opperman, and we will talk to you guys next week.